0: Hi, my name is Kirk Kinder, and this is Saving Yourself from Wall Street, the podcast for people who want to avoid Wall Street's sales tactics, high cost, and conflicted advice so they can take control of their financial life. So let's get to it. In this week's episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast, we're going to be talking about an asset class that's getting a lot of attention lately. Gold. Seeing a lot of interest in gold but there's lots of questions around it. How should you own the gold? Why should you own the gold? How much should you own in gold? So to help us with this, we've got Stan Kiang, who is the Director of Exchange Traded Funds for Aberdeen Standard Investments. Now, Aberdeen Standard has a really intriguing gold ETF offering. It's the lowest cost gold ETF out there. And we're gonna talk to Stan a little bit about that offering as well as just gold in general. Now, Stan was previously a member of ETF Securities U.S. ETFS and joined Aberdeen Standard Investments following its acquisition of ETFS in 2018. Now, prior to joining ETFS in 2015, Stan spent 13 years at BlackRock in a variety of functions spanning corporate development, portfolio management, and sales. So as a portfolio manager, Stan was a member of BlackRock's institutional equity team, Focused on managing commodity futures and emerging market equity-based products. As a member of the iShare's institutional sales team, Stan was tasked with managing relationships with registered investment advisors like me, asset managers, ETF strategists, everybody like that for the firm. Prior to joining BlackRock, Stan spent a number of years in equity research at JP Morgan Securities serving in a consulting role at FactSet Research Systems, as well as investment banking at Bank of America Securities. Stan holds a BA in economics from St. Mary's College and also holds a Series 7, 63, 3, and 30 FINRA registrations. So with that, let's talk a little bit about gold with Stan. So Stan, thanks for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Kirk. Glad to be here. Yeah. So it's really interesting what what you all do, um, some of your offerings at Aberdeen. And um I wanted to kind of focus a little bit on the gold right now, just because, you know, with what's going on in the market and the economic climate and the Federal Reserve and, and everything like that, gold has kind of been shining pretty well here. Uh, so far this year and and drawing a lot of interest and a lot of questions from clients of mine and, and from other folks. So I, I'd like to just start off with if you could talk a little bit about why you think that maybe having some gold in a portfolio makes sense.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think um yeah you're absolutely right. I mean this is a timely topic. I think um obviously given everything that's happening in the world right now, Uh, gold seems to be shining bright and there's a pretty big focus on uh, the asset class right now and i think essentially what you've seen from gold um you know through the through obviously year to date but even uh prior to that you know when when this mess really started coming on uh, you know gold gold is doing exactly what it's always done and and the reason why investors should think about holding gold in a portfolio is really as a as a diversifier, as a portfolio diversifier. You know, when you're looking at a uh, a 60/40 portfolio, for example, of equities and bonds, um, a lot of times, you know, and we've seen this in the past uh, in the past month or so. You know, when markets got real wonky, uh, correlations between those two asset classes got pretty close. And that's because there's essentially um, just this global destruction that's happening, you know, from a demand in an economic standpoint that's impacting both sides. But gold is kind of unique in a way because um, the correlation to both equities and fixed income in other asset classes, for that matter, is very low. And it's shown over time that it has... Um, A very low correlation to pretty much every asset class, including other commodities and other asset classes that are considered um, alternatives. And um, because of that, what we've seen is, you know, whether you're looking back at uh, prior sort of macroeconomic events where there have been large drawdowns, um, gold has had an additive impact on, uh, you know, on portfolios. And um, I think that, you know, if you were to just pull a line chart of... The equity markets, the bond markets in um, gold uh, gold's done uh, exactly what it's meant to do um, at least this year with the line
0: being relatively flat while everything else is going down okay, yeah, absolutely you know and when you're when you're thinking about it you know what you're talking about makes total sense, the correlation. Like, how much does somebody have to have allocated to gold in a portfolio to start to see some of these benefits? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think we get asked that a lot. And really, the answer is going to boil
1: down to what the rest of the portfolio looks like. Um, obviously, uh, your allocation to gold um, is it should should differ based on you know what the rest of your uh, asset class allocations look like. So. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say specifically what you should have, but I think what, you know, if, if, if time has proven anything is that the allocation shouldn't be zero. You know, we took uh, a simple 60-40 portfolio and, and peeled away 5% from each of those asset classes, 5% from equities, 5% from bonds, and we put uh, 10% of gold into a portfolio and sort of looked back at how that would have changed uh, the dynamic, using um, uh, using that kind of a mix, and if we look back at sort of you know prior events, whether that's year to date like we like we spoke of, whether that's um, Black Monday, the 2002 recession, the global financial crisis, gold has shown to, to create a cushion um, even in that kind of a small allocation relative to the rest of the portfolio. It's shown that you know it could help. Your drawdown reduce your drawdown by you know up to i don't know we've seen up to 600 uh, basis points so oh, wow. uh, hard to say exactly how much you should put into any given portfolio but certainly you know in our in our example that we just that we used a 10 percent allocation uh reducing equities to 55 and reducing bonds to 35 uh, made a substantial impact in in almost every scenario we looked at
0: okay yeah yeah, and, and nobody obviously. I, I always use this caveat at the at the end of the podcast and everything. You know, it's this is not advice. This is not we're not telling you to go buy ten percent in your portfolio. Just trying to get a feel. Like, I mean, I've seen it even where a two percent allocation starts to have some some extreme positive effects on on both risk and return uh, to gold. So yeah, I mean, it, that's right, and I think it, that has everything to do with that correlation that we spoke of. Because
1: obviously, you know, when you're, whenever you're putting anything in your portfolio, you know, there is a return expectation. And, uh, you know, I think that people can get lost in, oh, how much they think they can make on, on any given asset class. Obviously, gold doesn't have a yield, right? So people sometimes mm-hmm. feel like it's not uh, something that, you know, should take the place of fixed income, for example. Um, and gold, you know, obviously over time, equities have had a, a terrific run. So in many cases, people would say to themselves, "Oh, you know, I don't think gold is going to have um, the same kind of impact that equities would have." But you know, as you know, Kirk, you know, from a portfolio context, it's not only about the returns themselves; it's about that pattern of returns, right? And so that that kind of boils down to why you would start with equities and fixed income as your basis, because those are two different asset classes. But adding gold in there, uh, the pattern of returns for gold is different from equities. Uh, different from fixed income, different from REITs, different from hedge funds, and so that's where that advantage can come in, even if you're putting it in there uh, in small amounts
0: absolutely absolutely and, and you know you talked about your back testing data going you know to the eighty seven crash the the two thousand the two thousand two bear market um, and back then, gold at that point it was really tough to to access gold, you know you were either put it into you're safe at home or you had to find a place that actually would store it. Uh, mm-hmm. today, obviously it's been gold has been liberated, if you will. So I was just hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about the ETF landscape in gold, sort of like where we started back in, you know, I guess it was what, 2004 or five when, when the first ETF came out, the old GLD, uh, up mm-hmm. until now. And then talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your offering as well. And kind of the benefits there.
1: Yeah, no, I think you uh, you made a really good point. Um, I think obviously ETFs in general have made the markets much more accessible. You know, no matter which asset class you're talking about, you know the fact that you know investors can now go buy um, a basket of 500 stocks at any moment of the day and sell or sell at any moment in the day um, and pay you know sub 10 basis points for that uh, for that opportunity to do so is is has been profound you know it's a profound change in this in this industry that we're in and it's changed the way that um, you know individual investors and clients like yours um, can can comprise their portfolios I think that that's especially true in some of these harder to access asset classes like commodities uh, I would even say that that that's had a profound effect on bonds you know bonds traditionally are very illiquid you know you have to pay pretty high fees things of that nature to get access and commodities is kind of the same way um and so obviously we we haven't been able to crack the code on every commodity and that's simply because you know if you think about um, most commodities whether that be oil or grains uh, or you know livestock for that matter it's pretty difficult to custody that type of uh, that type of product (laughs) Uh, yeah. There's not a lot of custodians that are going to hold, you know, a, a herd of cattle for you. <laughs> yeah. um, but metal is sort of metal is a little bit different in that regard, where you actually can um, hold uh, metal in a vault. Gold is one of those longstanding metals that's always been in a vault. In fact, all the gold that's ever been mined out of the ground uh, still exists uh, above ground somewhere maybe a very small percentage uh, percentage of it has been used for different industrial purposes, but by and large, most of it is, is, is in vaults above ground. And so that made uh, that created kind of a unique opportunity to be able to uh, create an ETF around that. And, and I think the, the challenge that that solved was, as you had mentioned, you know, traditionally when you wanted to own uh, precious metals, whether that be gold, silver, uh, palladium, Platinum, or anything else, uh, that meant buying bars, coins, um, ingots, and, and holding on to those. And so, obviously, you know, there's, there's some advantages to doing that. You know, clearly, if you're buying hard bullion, there is going to be a, a value, uh, a storage value that, that you're going to get out of it. But by the same token, if it's difficult to store, if it's inconvenient to hold, if it's if there's a ton of friction… Uh, when it comes to either getting rid of it or buying it, sometimes that can outweigh the advantage of even holding it at all. And so that's where the ETF kind of comes into play where, you know, we, uh, you can now purchase ETFs, whether they're ours or or anyone else's that track the spot price of gold. There's gold in a vault that, uh, that collateralizes each of the shares of the ETF. and kind of removes all that inconvenience and hassle, that you would normally have to go through uh, to hold a precious metal.
0: Okay. And looking at at your uh, fiscal gold shares ETF, uh, the ticker SGOL, so kind of, you know, as you look at the landscape, the competitive landscape, what sort of makes you guys stand out a little bit?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things. Probably what, what folks would notice most is we do offer uh through SGOL, the lowest cost physically backed gold product in the marketplace. Um, I think that, you know, the for for most investors, um, I think cost is a factor, you know, especially these days, you know, with uh with the, the core offerings that are available for most fund providers, there, you know, we believe that commodities should be a core of somebody's portfolio as well. Um, as a diversifier, um, as mentioned earlier. So, you know, having SGOL available at 17 basis points uh, makes us far and away the lowest cost provider in this space, and um, we think that that's a huge advantage for folks because that obviously is directly additive uh, to their portfolios. But also, I think as an advantage, you know, and it's – I guess it's a a double-edged sword for us it's for better, for worse, probably better for the investor and worse for us. You know, our funds aren't enormous. You know, um, there's there's some competitive funds out there that are tens of billions of dollars larger than ours. Uh, the largest product in the space is about $50 billion. And so the, the question that comes up the most is really, you know, with a $50 billion fund, how do we know all that gold is really in the warehouse where it should be? Yeah, And uh, that that's a fair question, because obviously, you know, you, you're not going to have $50 billion in one warehouse. You're going to have to utilize uh, a pretty good number of subcustodians to hold that metal. And the auditing process for those subcustodians is going to be challenging. Uh, with our product, uh, at this very moment, our product is $2 billion. And so all the metal that we hold uh, sits in our primary vault, and it's inventoried on a daily basis, and we inspect those vaults. Uh, two to three times a year so we we know that all the metals there and I think if you're you know whether you're buying it as a diversification play or whether you're buying it because you're a gold bug or sort of a doomsday type uh, theorist um, you want to know that that gold is there backing each of the shares and um, we can tell you that you know we can pretty much ensure to you that it is okay
0: and then where where are your uh, where's your vault at right now
1: yeah, so we use we utilize two vaults okay. uh, for our SGL product. Um, one of them is in Zurich, Switzerland, and the other one is in London, England. And really, okay. uh, for many years, w- when we launched the product in 09, up up through about 12 months ago, we held the majority. Uh, actually, we held all the gold in Zurich, Switzerland, um, because we felt like our clients really appreciated the uh, the strict banking ro- the the banking laws that are associated with um, holding um, bullion in Zurich, um, but you know the, the reality of the, the matter is that the nexus for gold trading and really precious metals trading is in London, and so the bulk of metals, precious metals, are are actually held in London. And so, for to make to make things more convenient for the APs, the authorized participants that deal with our fund, um, we thought that. Uh, Adding a London location could remove a little bit of friction from them, which would ultimately benefit the shareholder, uh, your end investor, by lowering spreads. And so we did that. And and so at this point, uh, to answer your question, we hold bullion in both Zurich, Switzerland and London. Okay. Okay.
0: And and I assume that's probably the same. You've you've also got, you know, the platinum and silver and uh, palladium. Is that basically the same thing there as well? Um, the majority of those metals are held in London,
1: actually. Okay.
0: And again, that was okay. more for uh,
1: that was more to create ease of uh, ease of uh, trading and delivery and and uh, transportation for the folks that are dealing uh, with our
0: fund. Okay. And you brought up an interesting point because I've been reading for years. You know, so many people say that the you know the GLD product isn't actually. You know backed by the the bullion itself the, the using a lot of paper uh, options for it i mean have have you ever seen anything either way like saying yeah they they do have that much gold in the vaults or they or they don't or, or are you just kind of you know putting your faith that that would be there in case it something ever really went awry
1: well, you are putting your faith uh I think if you're asking me straight away, do I think the metal's there? Uh, I want to say that it is. Um, I don't want to speak for them, but I want to say sure. that it is. Um, but the, it's a fair question um, as it relates to how how do you audit all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you know, you can I I can tell you, we we know where our vault is, and we go there and we look at it. But when you have that much, you basically have a custodian who's taking responsibility for that metal but then he has to find a bunch of sub-custodians to help store all the metal. And so it's not gonna be sitting in one place, but rather it's gonna be in a number of different vaulting locations around the world. And it, it's really a question that boils down to auditing. You know, how do you audit all that? And um, uh, the, the, the fact is, for us uh, as an example, you know, being the advisor on the fund, we, we know where to go look at the gold. We know where to go find the metal and go audit the metal. When you're using a sub custodian or a whole series of them, the responsibility to audit boils down to now the primary custodian. And so, you know, are they going through all the uh you know the necessary procedures to go check that all that metal is actually there, that there isn't a bar missing somewhere? I wanna hope that they are, but you know, I, I think it, it's
0: certainly a fair question as to whether or not it's happening or not. Okay. Um, kind of sw- switching gears a little bit, just looking at uh, some of the other commodity strategies you have. Um, what, what's interesting to me is y- you kind of talk about how your, some of your commodity ETFs are K-1 free. And, and I know that that has always been a, a real pain for people trying to invest in commodities in ETFs. And can you talk a little bit about how you guys are able to do that? and and maybe some of the benefits for people who really aren't sure, you know, what a K1 is if this is the first time they've ever heard of that.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll take a step back actually and and sort of just paint uh, a little bit of a picture as to why how and why we came up with this product. Um so, you know, I guess uh she I'm trying to figure out how many years ago it was, but some number of years ago I was the uh uh lead commodity manager for the index products at BlackRock, and um, our clients at that time were traditionally, you know, your your corporate public pension plans, uh, your large asset owners. And and at that time, um, there were two major benchmarks that were used um, by those institutions, you know, as commodity proxies. And those continue to be the two major benchmarks that are used to this day. One of them is the, is the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, the GSCI. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which used to be called the Dow Jones AIG. Um, it's been rebranded a few different times, but the Bloomberg Commodity Index is what was historically the Dow Jones AIG. And so the biggest difference between those two benchmarks were that um, both take a, a sort of a market cap approach, and so, naturally, when you do that, similar to what you'd find in the S&P 500, the, the, the commodities that are produced the most and that sell the most have the heaviest weighting. And so, in the GSEI, or in, in commodity land, I should say, the, 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 the most heavily produced commodity is oil. Um, and that's probably no secret to anybody. So, that ends up being a very heavy weight in, in both the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index and really all commodity indices but the Bloomberg Commodity Index took a little bit of a different approach. They didn't want investors to have to take sort of an implicit bet on anything um, when when using that index. So they put an artificial cap on each commodity sector at 33%. So no commodity sector could be more than 33%, which naturally put a cap on uh, the, the weighting in oil. And so that was actually what uh, I tell you all this because that's what all these institutions were most interested in um, many years ago when I was managing money uh, for them. When um, when it came time to kind of revisit when I was part of uh, Aberdeen Standards ETF practice, this was, uh, I don't know, uh, back in 2017, and it came time to revisit you know, the, the opportunity to launch a broad commodity product, there was a few things that stood out to me at that time. The first thing is that at that time, there still was no exchange-traded fund based on the BCom index, which happened to be an index that was um, requested more often than not by institutions when I was managing money. So I thought that that was kind of a unique opportunity. But then at the same token, I wanted to be able to launch a product that sort of, um, that, that was able to answer the call, so to speak, With regards to uh, getting over some of the traditional hurdles that investors had to deal with um, with commodity funds high fees was one of those i even think to this at this very moment there's the vast majority of commodity products even if you're talking about etfs they're priced at 70 75 basis points or higher there's a handful that aren't and we're one of those but high fees were an issue at that time and then the other thing was Uh, the partnership structure that commodity funds generally fell into um, created the need for each of those funds to generate K-1 forms. That's a tax form that uh, investors will get if they're owning any kind of a partnership because essentially, you know, all the uh, distributions need to be passed down uh, through the vehicle to its underlying holders. And so in a commodity structure, generally that's how they're structured. And um, so you would have to receive a K-1 form. And and, really the K-1 form itself, as you know, Kirk, it's not the end of the world to get one, but it creates a little bit of a hassle because K-1 forms generally take some extra time to be be issued, which kind of pushes back um, the ability for the end investor to file taxes. And so sometimes that creates a delay where they have to go file an extension. Uh, Sometimes, you know, they will have filed their taxes and forgot that they needed a K-1, and then we'll have to refile. So it just creates a little bit of an administrative headache. So getting back to your question, when we launched the product, BCI is the ticker. Uh, We tried to launch uh, something uh, under the Bloomberg Commodity Index. We were able to launch something at low cost at 25 basis points. So substantially lower than everything that was out there, and then we launched it in forty act form uh, nineteen forty act form uh, which uh, precluded the need for um for a k one form so uh, we think that's uh you know we've got a pretty good offering in that space and that's
0: kind of uh well probably a long description of of how we got to where we are and does that does that function basically like some of the other you know, futures-based ETFs, or, or or is there something also with that 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 breaks you away from the from the whole K one issue as well? Well, so we were
1: able to. The, the, the structure is what makes it um, so you don't have to issue a K one. And most okay. other um, most other broad commodity funds are structured as thirty three Act D, uh, grantor trusts, which would uh, you know immediately create sort oh. of a partnership type situation. Okay, um, using the nineteen forty Act. Um, That's the same structure as a mutual fund as any sort of equity ETF. So that's what precludes the
0: the need to to, to issue a form K1. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's always just something. You know, the other thing I think a lot of CPAs, you know, charge a little extra because, you know, the K1s look confusing and nobody really understands it. So uh, I would always have clients complain about that. Uh, that issue so it's really neat that you, not only are you your fund doesn't distribute a k1 but but then the, the cost savings are substantial as well so yeah yeah no you, you I think um I think
1: we've got a really good offering I mean the commodity space has been a tough one right the commodities asset class has been a tough one obviously gold as of late has been uh, something that's garnered a lot of interest uh, both as a diversifier and both for tactical reasons too, right? People are just afraid. It's crisis time. Um, there's just a lot of fear out in the markets, and, and so gold has kind of got it's sort of building a mind of its own, um, if you will. But generally speaking, for broad commodities, um, that's been a tough place to be. Um, but I think that the the silver lining in that is is um, you know as, as as you know, all asset classes kind of go through cycles and commodity is probably one that um that does cycle more than others and it's also one where um inevitably prices come back Um, and the reason being is that one commodities are the natural ingredients to life quite frankly you know those commodities make up the food you eat they make up the clothes that you wear um it's really the, the the ingredients for life so you need those things and then secondarily um there's a production cycle to commodities so if you're if if prices are are low um for for long enough then unfortunately you know some some farmers or some uh, some some of the industries that create those commodities will go out of business or they will shut their minds or they'll you know um, idle their machinery or, or do whatever they have to do because they can't afford to run uh run their factories and so that naturally impacts supply and and over time that 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 generally brings things back into balance so i think that kind of where we are with our commodity offering now certainly when we launched it um i think that was a a bit of a tough time um but um i think we're kind of going into a a place where i think commodities will have a role uh in the portfolio uh if nothing else is a diversifier um and there's also, a, I think, a reversion to the mean opportunity that's
0: that's in that asset class as well. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, like you said, I mean, you can make the strong case for just commodities in general as a negative correlation to to stocks. And yeah. uh, and then getting back to your point about the cyclicality of of everything, uh, you know, right now it clearly looks like deflation you know, with bond yields dropping like they are and everything like that. But, you know, the central banks around the world are are fighting this with as much ammo as they can. And at some point, you just never know when that inflation, you know, when the so far it's just gone to price inflation or asset inflation and not price inflation. But at some point, you know, if they start monetizing everything, we're going to start to see it, uh, you know, a lot more dollars chasing the same number of goods. And that's going to uh, it's it's going to be good for commodities. So Yeah, I
1: think that's right. I mean, you're just in a unique situation right now where um, there really is this tug of war. You know, you would think that uh, intuitively uh, because of uh, the, the vast expansion and all the different sovereign balance sheets, including, you know, the United States and all the money that's being printed, you would think that is inherently going to be inflationary. But by the same token, um, because we had a government-mandated Shutdown both here domestically as well as around the world uh, due to COVID-19. There is this, um, as you say, this sort of demand destruction that's that's kind of created a, a bit of deflation in some ways. And I think um, both of those scenarios actually are good for gold. And I think that's why you're you're you know you're seeing so much interest in that space. Uh, obviously, you know, you can't print gold uh, like you can print. Dollars, and so I think that's where people are looking for that store of value. in um, and, In and they're, and they're they're looking to gold for that. Um, but certainly, as you as you as you indicated, all that money is going to show up somewhere. Uh, we've obviously committed as a, just in the U.S. We've committed to uh, you know north of two trillion dollars. I think they're working on another relief package, and around the world, we've seen another. I I think it's at this moment 6 trillion that's been committed to um, to fighting or relieving um some of the challenges that are that are coming from this COVID pandemic. So all that money is going to have to flow somewhere at some point and and so I think when that happens um broad commodities should do
0: should do pretty well. Yeah. I I would totally agree with that. Absolutely. Um so Stan I I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh where could folks find out more either about you or Aberdeen Standard? Where are the best places for sure. them to go for information? Sure, so our our website would
1: be the best place to start. Um that that is www.aberdeestandardetfs.us. Uh that there you can find your traditional fact sheets, you can find information on the bars that we hold and you can find some information about you know, our auditing process and how we ensure that the
0: bars that we claim to hold uh, are where they should be. Okay, great, fantastic. Again, I appreciate your time. And uh, if anybody's listening to this, obviously go to the website and you'll get, just there's a ton of information. I love the site. Uh, So again, Stan, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your day. You're welcome, Kirk. Stay well. Well, that's it for this episode of the saving yourself from wall street podcast i appreciate you stopping in as always you can find our podcast along with other articles and videos at saving from wall and now the lawyer say hi saving yourself from wall street is hosted by kirk kinder kirk kinder is the owner of picket fence financial a
1: fee-only financial planning firm Big Offense Financial is regulated by the states of Maryland and Florida in accordance and in compliance with securities laws and regulations. Big Offense Financial does not render or offer to render personalized financial or tax advice through the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal aid.